Hey, Mountain Park family, Pastor Andrew here. It is great to be back. It is really good. I'm super thankful for a few weeks. Uh, Rochelle and I and Eli and Simon had in Alberta. They were there for over a month, but um, I was there for a few weeks. It was great to be with family there, and uh, I'm excited to be back. We are uh, about to, I, we've been saying this, I know, for like a month. We're about to get into the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and we're going to do that. Just a couple of things before I start uh, with that uh, this week. So uh, we've been mentioning to you that we are intending to shift gears a little bit and uh, shifting away from sort of a, uh, a our Sunday house church model in the way that it has been for the last year, year and a half, really, uh, into um, sort of on-demand content. And so our plan is that um, as of the 1st of September, we won't have our service online on Sunday morning in the same way we have been. We'll still capture content and we'll still post our messages We'll still post some worship stuff, but that would be more on an on-demand basis. And really simply, one of the things we've been wrestling with, and I've been wrestling with, is God, what is your heart and your vision for us as a church? Um, you know, I'm not speaking uh, here about, you know, other churches and their strategies for online, but I've just been sensing um, the Spirit kind of leading us in the direction of saying, look, um, we want to serve our people with the content that God is, is stirring in us online, but he's not inviting us to build an online platform or an online church. He's not inviting us, I, I think us particularly, uh, to invest in trying to reach people in different parts of the world. They have local churches in their area um, that God has positioned right around them to serve them and to connect with them and to partner with them. So as a church, our strategy is not to build an online church. It's simply to serve you with digital content and tools um, that are helpful to you in your walk with Jesus that you can access through our YouTube channel, uh, on our website, our podcast, and things like that, whenever you want. So our plan then is to do two more of these Sunday house churches this week and then next week, and then shift. Now, uh, we don't know what's going to be happening this fall with, you know, we're hearing whispers and rumors of more lockdowns and things like that. So we will assess things as we go. And if we shift back into a Sunday house church, we'll let you know. But that would be just in response to, you know, if our church was sort of shut down to groups of 10 again or something like that. Either way, even if that is where things are going, I want you, like, let's just take a deep breath. Jesus is faithful. We can trust him. Uh, we can follow him with confidence. Even if we were down to groups of 10 again, we would be doing that. We would not shut our offices down like we, we didn't do that in the spring. Uh, we are here to walk with you in person in these groups of 10 or whatever that is. So if that was a reality, uh, I just want you to know that um, 
It's actually our privilege and our joy to walk with you in person in those other ways. And so, um, yeah, I'm not worried or stressed, and I don't think Jesus is either. In fact, I know he's not. So uh, we're going to head into the context or the preface <laughs> for our Sermon on the Mount uh, and the preface to the Beatitudes. But before I do, let's just take a moment to pray. So wherever you are, whatever you're doing now, I just want to invite you in with me. What we need and what we want is for the Holy Spirit to teach us through his word this morning uh, or this evening, wherever you are, whenever you are. So let's pray. Father, we humble ourselves before you and uh, we just acknowledge that we have no ability to control what's happening in the world around us. We have um, no ability on our own to affect transformation in our heart and in our soul. It's only you, Jesus, that can change our lives. It's only you, Holy Spirit, that can really truly uh, illuminate the Word of God the way it needs to be in our heart and in our mind. And so we just, we yield to you, we submit to you, Spirit of God, and we ask that you would teach us. We ask not just to be taught, but we ask to be friends of God. We ask to know you, God, more as we study your word today. We are just asking for your um, transformation in our lives. We give you open space to work, to convict, uh, to stir us in a new way, to reignite the passion of our love for you. Um, our desire is to be faithful to you, is to walk in a vibrant, intimate uh, relationship with you. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, if there is anything at work or present uh, in the lives of those under the sound of my voice that is uh, opposed to the kingdom rule of Jesus, that is set against the purposes of God for their lives or uh, set against their growing understanding of God through his word, we, in Jesus' name, uh, just cut off and bind any unclean spirit in the spiritual realm or anything at work in the natural realm that wants to um, that wants to cut us off from the life that Jesus wants to bring us today. In Jesus' name, we just forbid the enemy of God from having influence in our thinking or in our heart from uh, you know uh, blinding us to the truth. In Jesus' name, and we. Uh, just command all principalities and rulers and authorities to be subject to the lordship of Jesus in these moments. Amen. All right, so let's just dive right in. Matthew 4, 23 to 25. This is going to be a message that sets the context for the whole Sermon on the Mount. So uh, turn to Matthew 4 uh, with me. 23 to 25, of course, as I have been doing this whole year, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. So this is context here for everything Jesus is about to say. This is Matthew's way of painting the larger picture uh, uh, that the Sermon on the Mount teaching will fit into. So 
Matthew 4:23. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. If you have a pen, you can underline that statement there, announcing the good news about the kingdom. All right, so this is what Jesus is doing. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. This is what Jesus is doing. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began to bring, bringing him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the Ten Towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. So here's the big idea that Matthew is presenting here, this context to the teaching of Jesus, that this teaching of Jesus is not some esoteric insider teaching that he's, you know, he's pulling the disciples away to these private places and giving these super spiritual people a download of, you know, his teaching. Jesus is teaching in the context of his greater ministry. He's teaching this in the presence of his disciples, but also in the presence of these crowds. What's important for us to understand, in fact, actually to get the proper context for this, we have to go to Matthew 7 as well, the other side of this teaching from Matthew. And we need to see and understand what was happening. And in Matthew 7, right near the end of Matthew 7, Jesus has these famous words. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. So, okay, so Jesus is speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to these crowds of whom he has been healing them, setting them free, working powerfully in their lives. That's the context of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, this is not just a propositional, uh, you know, university lecture. This is not a Western style of teaching where it's like, hey, come sit in my class. Let me download these thoughts and ideas to you. Um, this is Jesus actually teaching and demonstrating, teaching and demonstrating. He's doing it with his disciples and with the crowd. And then Jesus says, anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise. So here we see at the end of this, Jesus saying, you are uh, uh, to apply what I've just said. So this is important because some people have looked at Jesus' teaching and said, that can't possibly be for us to apply. Or some people even draw a distinction between Jesus and Paul. And they would say, hey, um, in this age, we are to follow Paul's teaching, but we're not bound to Jesus' teaching. It's just crazy, actually. Jesus is saying, uh, you need to apply and integrate what I've said here into your life. So we know who Jesus is talking to. He's talking to the crowds. He's talking to his disciples. He's saying this 
in the context of demonstrating the power and authority of the kingdom of God to heal people from every disease, to set people free. So he's marrying his teaching and the ideas of the kingdom with a demonstration of the power of the kingdom. And he is admonishing them to actually follow through and begin to apply these things to their life. Further on down that, when Jesus had finished saying these things, we're at the very last uh, verse of uh, second verse, second last verse of Matthew 7. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds, all right, so the crowds are there, were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teaching. And then again, Matthew paints this context that he started with in Matthew 4, 23, that we just read. In uh, 8, verse 1, large crowds follow Jesus as he came down the mountain. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached him and knelt before him. Lord, the man said, if you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I'm willing, he said, be healed. And instantly, the leprosy left. Then Jesus said to him, don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priests and uh, let them examine you. Take along an offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. All right, so again, this is important. Matthew is setting this context that this teaching is not just propositional information teaching uh, um, that is kind of disconnected from the reality of the kingdom at work. So, Matthew, back to Matthew 3, or sorry, Matthew 4, 23. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, we're about to hear about the DNA and culture of the kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount, we're going to talk more specifically about the, what the word blessed means and as we begin the Beatitudes next week and all of these things. But the Sermon on the Mount, the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5 to 7 is an expression or an explaining of the culture and DNA of the kingdom. It, Jesus is about to explain to everyone what, the, what characterizes his kingdom. All right. So he's just healed them. He's set them free. He's teaching them um, and he's engaging in kingdom life. He's demonstrating the kingdom and he's about to just download to them. Hey, here is the culture of the kingdom. And what Matthew begins this with is stating that Jesus came announcing the good news about the kingdom. So what is the good news of the kingdom? So specifically, what is the good news? That, that word in the Greek there uh, is evangelion, which is where we get our word evangelical or evangelism. But that Greek word for the good news was originally used to describe the good news associated with military victory, and it was good news that a messenger brought from, uh, uh, from the front lines of battle or from the area of battle to his commander. And it was a, a good message. Often it accompanied um, these 
kings and leaders who were, you know, about to return from battle and they would send messengers to bring the good news. Hey, we've won a victory. Um, the, the reign of our emperor is secure in this area. Uh, we have succeeded in, um, you know, our goals, uh, militarily. And so this is how this is used. Uh, but specifically, the writers of the New Testament use this same word that was a military term in the Greek to talk about Jesus and his salvation. So the good news is simply an announcement of the rule and reign and plan and power of Jesus Christ to restore the original design of God, the heartbeat of God that we find right at the beginning of Genesis. In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah used this same term. In Isaiah 52, 7, he says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. So there's two aspects Isaiah is talking about. The good news is a um, um, a heralding or a, an announcement that salvation has come and also that the God of Israel reigns. So salvation and reigning are the two kind of planes or aspects of this good news. So um, one scholar says it this way, the message about Jesus's kingdom bringing life, death, and resurrection as the fulfillment of God's ancient promises in Isaiah 52, 7, that he will redeem Israel and the world. Thus, the gospel in the New Testament is the notion that God has accomplished his ancient promises of salvation through the Messiah Jesus. So the good news is the announcement that God has fulfilled his plan to save his people from their sins, to bring redemption, and to now reestablish his kingdom rule on the earth through Jesus. In other words, the good news is the announcement that the kingdom is here, and not only is the kingdom here, it's available now. Here's the good news that Matthew is saying Jesus is pronouncing. Look, everyone, the kingdom is here. It's available to you now. My father has had a plan right from the beginning. I'm the fulfillment of that plan uh, that impacts Israel, but impacts the whole world. God has a plan. God has the person, Jesus. God has the power, and God has time, the present in his hand, this is the announcement of the good news of the kingdom. God has a plan, God has a person in Jesus, God has the power, and God has brought this kingdom to bear now. It's available to you. And what is so key is that we understand Jesus is declaring this while he's healing people, while he's setting people free, while he's casting out demons and healing people. He's saying, look, this is the outflow. This is the evidence of the kingdom of God at work. Not only am I telling you it's good news, not only am I saying um, that, that the vehicle or the, 
the mechanism to be saved from your sins is present, but also the power of God to work in your life, to destroy the work and influence of the enemy is also present. And it's breaking out to all of you. That's what Jesus is doing. And that's what picture Matthew is painting in Matthew 4, 23 and on. So that's the good news. That's the announcement that the plan of God from before time, the plan of God going back to his design for creation and for humanity to rule and reign under his leadership on the earth, to have dominion on the earth, to to reign on behalf of God, that that plan has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The promises God made to Israel have now been fulfilled. Their Messiah has come and also God's promise to gather all people through Jesus to, to allow his promises to to impact all nations and all people has now come to fulfillment. And that good news is not just that that plan has been executed, it's that the kingdom, authority, and reign and power of God is now at work in the world. God is actively now pushing back on the enemy. Jesus came in 1 John 3, verse 8. Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil He's now doing it. It's not something that we just hear about and wait for some time down the road. It's now breaking into our life. So that's the good news. So what is the kingdom then? Kingdom typically in uh, scriptural writing means dominion or rule. So our kingdom, for example, we all have uh, a little kingdom or queendom in our lives. Our kingdom would be those things which we have say over, those things which we have power to control or think we have power to control. So our kingdom would be those things which we have say over. It's the things that we have dominion or rule over. Dallas Willard says it this way, every last one of us has a kingdom or a queendom or a government a realm that is uniquely our own, where our choice determines what happens. Here is a truth that reaches into the deepest part of what it is to be a person. Our kingdom is simply the range of our effective will, where what we want done is done. Whatever we genuinely have the say over is in our kingdom. And our having the say over something is precisely what places it within our kingdom. We are meant to exercise our rule only in union with God, Willard says, as he acts with us. He intended to be our constant companion and or co-worker in the creative enterprise of life on earth. That is what his love for us means in practical terms. So when Jesus taught us to pray and said, You know, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus is describing what a kingdom is. It's the effective uh, reign or the effective will of something being accomplished. So God's kingdom is his effective will. It's the range of his effective will. So God's kingdom is where what God wants done is done. 
So when Jesus was saying, you know, the kingdom of God is here and it's near, it's because Jesus was doing the will of his father. Jesus was walking out in authority and power the desire of his father, which is why the kingdom of God had come. The kingdom of God comes in our life when we submit our will, when we submit our rule and reign, where we, when we submit ourselves under the lordship of Christ, under the rule and reign of God, and say, God, your will be done in this. I'm going to yield my control. I'm going to yield my desire and what I want. And I'm going to instead say, God, what is your desire? What do you want? That's when the kingdom of God comes in our life and establishes its rule and its reign. All right. So the kingdom of God is the range of his effective will. So Jesus is saying not only uh, is there good news, not only am I announcing to you that the plan and promises of God have been fulfilled in me, I'm actually bringing the kingdom of God to bear. It's available right now. The rule of God on the earth, the, uh, the reigning of God over the powers of darkness, the reigning of God over sin, the reigning of God over the things that have been held in bondage, the reigning of God um, to restore and renew everything the enemy has meant for evil, to, to turn it to good. So the kingdom of God is where what God wants done is done. So the servant on the mount, then, as we'll get into it, is a description of what it looks like when the kingdom of God begins to reign in the heart and relationships of God's people. When God's kingdom takes root and when God's kingdom is at work in our heart, in our inner life, in our relationships and the world around us, Jesus is describing in the Sermon on the Mount what it looks like for the kingdom of God to rule and to reign. So the context of the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew's painting here is the announcement of the good news, the declaration of the good news and the demonstration of the good news through Jesus healing and casting out demons and setting people free and, and establishing the reign of God on the earth. The good news is the announcement of the plan of God through Jesus, but it is good because of the nature of God and the authority and power of God through Jesus to bring the kingdom to bear. It's good because of the nature and character of the God who backs the plan. And this is so essential. Remember, we've been telling you that in order to properly understand the Sermon on the Mount, to properly hear Jesus's words, we need to know God and his character the way that Jesus did. We need to see God the way that Jesus did. We need to see that the God behind the plan and the promise is good, that he's 
filled with compassion and mercy. He's slow to anger and abounding in unfailing love and faithfulness. Everything from Exodus 34 that we've been walking through and learning about the nature and character of God. This is the God who brings this plan into being. This is the God who backs it with his power and authority. This is the nature of the one who stands behind all things and fills all things and uh, you know energizes all things and gives power and strength to all things. So in order for us to understand Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 to 7, we have to see his teaching in light of uh, the picture that Matthew is painting around. And Jesus is talking to these Israelites, the outcasts and the abandoned, the ashamed, and he's talking to the unworthy and he's talking to the crippled and the lame and the he's talking to those, you know, in bondage to the enemy, oppressed by the enemy, and he's talking to them and not just saying, hey, there's good news for you, but um, actually stepping in and healing and bringing restoration and, and bringing renewal. This is the substance of what is happening around Jesus' teaching. And we see that Matthew's been painting this picture all the way through. So the good news, number one, is the announcement of the plan of God for the unworthy, the outsider, the disqualified, the ashamed, the weak, the broken, and the helpless. The good news is the announcement of God's plan to them. Jesus is speaking to those people. They're crowding all around him on that mountainside. And he's saying, here's the good news. God has a plan. He's going to restore everything. He's going to renew everything. He's going to fulfill his promises. And yes, you're unworthy. And yes, you're far from God. And yes, you're disqualified. And yes, you're sinful. And yes, you have a checkered past. And yes, you're broken and mourning. And yes, you're grieving. And yes, you're helpless. And yes, you can do nothing to heal yourself or improve your situation. But I am here. This is the good news. This is what Jesus teaches and then demonstrates to these same people who were unworthy, these same people who needed healing from him, these same people that needed restoration. Jesus steps in and he does it and then invites them to follow him, surrender their lives to him to repent, to turn away from the way they have been living. He doesn't tell them to shape up. He doesn't tell them to get their crap together and their act together in order to receive his renewal and restoration and healing and salvation. He says, look, this is the good news. I'm gonna give it to you and then invite you to turn your life around and follow me. The good news is the announcement of the plan of God for the unworthy, the outsider, the disqualified, ashamed. We see this actually in Matthew's first sentence in his gospel, uh, where Matthew, we've talked about this, you can go back and listen to the whole message, but where he says this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah. What Matthew is literally saying in line one of his gospel is that this is the book of the new Genesis brought by Jesus Christ. We're going back to Genesis. Jesus 
is here and this is the new genesis. This is the rebirth of everything God had planned and promised. Matthew believes he's writing now a, a new book of Genesis and the announcement of the good news of the kingdom of God is the announcement of God's plan, this new start. Jesus is the new Adam and Jesus is God's uh, vehicle to restore all things, to renew, to save his people from their sins and destroy the work of the enemy. Interestingly enough, we've been studying in Ephesians. Ephesians 1 is a it has so many parallel themes. Paul is laying out the doctrine of who God is in the same way that Matthew lays out the doctrine of who God is in Matthew 1. Paul lays it out in Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 1, 5, this is what Paul said. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. This is the plan, okay? So the good news of the plan of God, all right? So Matthew is saying that um, his book is the new Genesis wrought by Jesus Christ, initiated by Jesus. Paul says God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure that God had a plan. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan, Paul says to the Ephesians. At the right time, God, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. So the good news is the plan of God coming into being, being fulfilled, being worked out and accomplished. We see this is good news again because that plan of God is backed by the character and nature of a good, loving God. That plan is not carried out by a tyrannical, angry, vindictive, uh, you know, punitive God. That plan is actually carried out by a good, loving, patient, merciful, and faithful God. Again, we need to get this right because following his his father, uh, submitting himself to his father was not hardship for Jesus. Yes, there's a cost to following God. We're called to lay down our life, to, to pick up our cross, to deny ourselves. We're called to surrender. We're called to be crucified with Christ. Yes, these are realities, but that is not a, a, an abysmal sort of... Um, you know, something that should be feared or dreaded. There's great joy in surrendering to the plan of God because of the character of the God behind the plan. We're not surrendering to a, a tyrannical, abusive, authoritative, dictatorial ruler. We're surrendering to the one who loves us more than we could ever imagine. We're surrendering to someone who desires for us, not to harm us, but desires are good. We're surrendering ourselves to that. And this is what Matthew's painting in Matthew 1. Again, in that genealogy, 
we see Matthew's theology of the nature of God, his mercy through that genealogy. Matthew specifically includes men and women who were disqualified from ever uh, deserving the promises of God. In the genealogy, we see that there is no barrier. There's no sin in your past. There's nothing that God cannot overcome to accomplish his purposes and his plans. In that genealogy, we see that there is nothing that can stop the purposes and plans of God. There's, there's nothing that the enemy can tempt you into. There's nothing that can disqualify you from God restoring and renewing his purpose and his plan for you. We see his mercy in the genealogy. We see his justice that God wants to be our first love. We see from Solomon to the exile that again and again and again, they had abandoned their first love and God keeps calling them back and saying, look, I just, I want relationship with you, but if you will continue to reject me, it'll come with a cost. And we see in the genealogy is faithfulness. God's timing is not our timing. From the exile back to Jesus, we see God working in his timing and in his way. We see that he is faithful. He is faithful to fulfill what he has said and promised. And in the birth of Jesus, we see uh, Matthew expanding on the nature and character of God. We see that God shows us that his ways aren't our ways. None of us would have ever used the mechanism of uh, the virgin birth, something that would have been so shameful and scandalous to Mary and Joseph and their families, that God, his ways aren't our ways. So his time is not our time, his ways aren't our ways. But we see in Joseph's response, a love that covers. This is Matthew giving us an actual um, a story description of the kind of love that God has. It's a love that covers, not a, not a dysfunctional love that wants to expose our faults and our failures and our weaknesses and our, you know, all of our dysfunction and things like that. God's love is a love that covers. And again, we need to see this as we contemplate God's call to repentance and surrender and dying to ourselves. It's not because he wants to grind us into the ground and make us feel condemned and ashamed and unworthy. It's it's actually coming from a heart of love that wants to cover us with himself. And we see that he is a God who saves. Uh, Jesus will save his people from their sins is what Matthew says. We also see in uh, the end of that chapter, Matthew 1, the theology of God that Matthew's painting is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the kind of God who comes into our sin-stained and broken and desperate lives. He's not the kind of God who sits aloof far off and says, I would never taint myself. You know, I would never associate myself with, you know, the picture Matthew paints is a God who does come down, who comes into the middle of the darkness and the brokenness. And we see this with Jesus as he's healing all of these broken, hurting, um, you know, unqualified 
outcasts on the mountain. Jesus is exploding into their brokenness and their darkness and their sin and in their shame and in their guilt and their mess. And he's healing them. He's bringing the kingdom to bear in their lives in the moment. It's available. The good news is the news of God's plan to save his people from their sins through Jesus Christ. But it's also good because it's the availability now of the kingdom of God. Again, Paul in Ephesians, he's mirroring these aspects of the nature and character of God to the Ephesians. He's kind of, again, Ephesians 1 and Matthew 1 have a lot of parallels. Paul says this, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God, even before all of the dysfunction around you and before you have made horrible decisions in your life and before you, uh, you know, have walked away from God and all of these things, he loved you. He loved you and he put into motion a plan to be reunited with you, to save you from your sin because of his love. Ephesians 1, 7 he is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son. Paul is highlighting, he's hammering home here the nature of God, his love and his kindness. Ephesians 1.8, he has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Paul is saying, look, we can, we can trust the God who is behind this good news announcement. So Jesus' whole sermon is rooted in his understanding of the nature and character of God as being inherently good, loving, and trustworthy. Not only is God sovereign and all-powerful, all-knowing, and omnipresent, but he is driven by his love for us and what is good for us. The Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, the scene that Matthew's painting has to be seen through that lens. This is the father that Jesus himself fully entrusted his life to. So the good news is the news of the plan of God being fulfilled in Jesus. The good news is good because it is now available. The power and authority of God through Jesus for the present is now available for the broken, the hurting, the grieving, the mourning, the lame, the blind, the sick, the discouraged, the unworthy, those bound up in sin, those being buffeted by the enemy. The good news is good because the power of God, the authority of Jesus Christ is available for you now in your life today. It's not something that you just have to accept and then wait for eternity for. You don't have to wait for freedom for eternity. You don't have to wait to have victory over sin and the dysfunction and, and consequences of sin for eternity. You can step into the kingdom present reality now. And this is what Matthew is expressing to us as he sets up the Sermon on the Mount with that picture of Jesus healing people and setting them free of the crowds coming to them 
Again, he healed every kind of disease and illness. They didn't deserve it. They had done nothing to prove themselves worthy of it. They were just broken, hurting people that Jesus in his love and his mercy extended the authority and power of the kingdom of God. He said, here's the good news of the plan of God. And the even better news is that the power and authority of God is available to you today. In Matthew 9, 35 and 36, this is like the final sort of, a lot of people would say that, that uh, Matthew 4, 23 to 9, 35 is all sort of one continuous teaching of Matthew. So it's all one window to see things through. This is what Matthew says in Matthew 9, 35 to kind of close out the whole section on the Sermon on the Mount and all of these things. Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages in that area teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news of the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Again, Matthew is drawing us back to the reality in the present of the kingdom of God coming to bear to bring restoration, healing, actual real effects in our lives today and he roots that in the character of God saying Jesus had compassion on them. He's rooting all of this in the goodness of God. The good news was not just a, a verbal statement. It was Jesus teaching and demonstration. This is what Paul says at the end of Ephesians 1. As Paul is linking the nature of God, the plan of God in Ephesians 1, to the now present reality of the authority and power of God through Christ, Paul says this, I pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now he, Christ, now he is far above every ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church, for the benefit of those who have given their lives to him, who have surrendered their will to his, who have decided to abandon the pursuit of their own life and their own desires and their own control and their own mechanisms of salvation and all of this other stuff to those who have humbled themselves and said, Jesus, I, I desire for you to be Lord of my life, to lead my life, who have repented of their sin and turned the other way to those. And for their benefit, Jesus Christ is seated in authority and power over all things. And the church is his body. Paul finishes it off by saying, 
It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. The, the good news of the kingdom of God is the plan of God, the nature of the God who backs that plan and the availability of the power and authority of God to transform your life today. And Jesus did it by touching people where they needed healing and restoration the most. What do you need from Jesus today? What do you need from him? What are you willing to lay down for him? Are you willing to repent of your sin, to surrender your control, to surrender your desires, to surrender your life to him, to surrender your thinking to him, to surrender the ways that you behave and, and conduct your life to him? Are you willing to do that? And, and following up on that, what do you need him to do in your life? He wants to work in power in your life. Paul defined presenting the good news fully. His definition of fully presenting the good news is found in Romans 15. I dare not boast about anything except what Christ has done through me, bringing the Gentiles to God by my message and by the way I worked among them. They were convinced, okay, listen to this, by the power of miraculous signs and wonders, that's what Jesus was doing, and by the power of God's spirit in this way, I have fully presented the good news of Christ from Jerusalem all the way to Elicrium. Dallas Willard says this, New Testament passages make it plain that his, this kingdom is not something to be accepted now and enjoyed later, but something to be entered now. Matthew 5.20, 18.3, John 3, 3-5. It is something that already has flesh and blood citizens. John 18, 36, Philippians 3, 20, who have been transformed into it and are follow, fellow workers in it. Jesus and his kingdom have authority and power for us in our lives today, right now. He is here, and because he is here, we have all that we need to face the trials the dark night of the soul, the enemies that loom over us. What does that mean for us today? It's a good question as we wrap up. Is that good news of the plan of God that he would save us from our sins through Jesus, is that actually good news for you? Or is your own kingdom agenda raising itself up in conflict with it. Maybe another way to ask this question is, what are those areas of your heart or in your mind or in your life where your agenda, where what you want done, how you want it done, how you want to live, what you want to choose and determine and decide for yourself, what are those areas where that is in conflict with the kingdom of God, with the desire of God, with the will of God in your thinking and in your heart? The call of Jesus and every one of the gospel writers and every one of the New Testament writers and apostles after Jesus was to turn and repent for your sin 
to turn the other way, to live a different way, to make different choices, to follow the rule and leadership of Jesus, not your own. So where do you need to walk in repentance? What are the things that you need to turn in your life today? And then secondly, where do you need healing and restoration? Where do you need the powerful work of God? So as a church, I want you to know as we are heading into this fall, and it's a totally new season, I wanna remind you that our culture as a church is one of repentance and surrender to Jesus. I will never stop calling you and me to repentance and surrender. I will never stop blasting that with my big loud voice to repent and surrender. Our culture is one of surrender and dependence on God, not of asserting our own strength and our capabilities and our capacity. Our culture is one of repentance and surrender, of humility and submission to Jesus and his authority. That's our culture. Our culture is also one where we're willing to die to ourselves, to lay our own life down, to deny ourselves, as Jesus says, to pick up our cross daily and follow him. Our culture is one where we're willing for our flesh to be crucified with Christ. We're willing to lay things down. We're willing to actually surrender things to him, to place our desire in his hands and allow him to, to, to ask us to do what he desires we do. Our culture is one where we seek to walk out what we talk. We want to move from just hearing his teaching and hearing Jesus talk about the good news to integrating the good news, to integrating scripture and into our life, to be transformed by them, not just informed by them. So here's I want to remind you or just say as as I wrap this up, the direction I just feel God calling us into as a church in this season, and it's actually terrifying to me in some ways, is one where we balance proclamation and demonstration. Jesus or Paul, Peter, in the New Testament, we don't really see an example of just Uh, academic teaching without a subsequent demonstration of the kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, we don't just see rules for living. We don't just see good propositional teaching. We see uh, 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 a calling out of the good news, an announcement of the good news, a proclamation and a demonstration. We see both happening, and I believe it's on the heart of God for us as a church to in, in humility and in the fear of God to begin to step into this culture where we're not just teaching good things, but we're, we're following that up with inviting and asking God to work powerfully in people's lives, where we're praying for healing, where we're um, active and engaged in deliverance ministry where necessary, where the church is being the church for the church. It's not just about a few leaders at the front. My heart and desire is to see people with gifts of healing released into the body and people with gifts of, of uh, 
teaching and preaching released in the body, people with gifts of, uh, in the prophetic released into the body to actually strengthen and grow the body. So I, I believe that God is calling us to follow the example of G Jesus and with proclamation and demonstration, information and then integration in the kingdom of God. So what are the areas of your life where you need to move from just knowing theoretically about things to actually integrating those truths into your life? Where do you need healing? Where do you need restoration? I wanna just invite you um, into this in the life of our church in these coming months and weeks and years. Well, I don't know what it's gonna look like, but we wanna take Jesus at his word and we, I'm desperate to see the fruit of the kingdom of God, the reign of God, meet people in their brokenness and in their need. Not just to tell them it's available and to shut the door and go our merry way for the rest of the week. I'm desperate to see the Spirit of God at work in your life to bring you the transformation you so desperately need. So let's pray. Father, I don't even know what exactly that looks like, and part of me is even apprehensive to say these things out loud because it, I'm, you're calling me to step outside of my own comfort zone, and you're calling me to step in faith and to trust you. But I just, Father, I pray for those under the sound of my voice who need healing from you emotionally, relationally. I just, Father, in Jesus' name, ask according to your mercy that you'd bring restoration to relationships, that you'd bring healing to wounds and, and grieving and, a, and emotional a brokenness in Jesus' name. Father, I pray for those who need physical healing, that you would bring uh, uh, renewal to their, their body systems and functions. Father, I pray that the kingdom of God would come to bear on my friends and on my life too. We ask for your wisdom as we walk through this Sermon on the Mount. We ask that you would teach us, Holy Spirit, how to not just hear it, but integrate it and live it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.